You're listening to the Growth Islands podcast, a show about what it takes for businesses to truly seize the opportunities that exist in diverse and exciting Southeast Asia, or SEA as we like to call it. My name is Nick Nash. I'm one of the co-founders of Asia Partners, a growth equity firm focused on tech and tech-enabled businesses here in Southeast Asia. And I am Rovik from Singapore's Economic Development Board, also known as the EDB, the lead government agency responsible for strategies that enhance Singapore's position as the global center for business, innovation, and talent. In each episode, we have the unique opportunity to talk to a business leader in a fast-growing startup to understand how they are scaling their businesses in the region. We get to the heart of the issue and hear firsthand real stories that we hope will inspire you to similarly take the journey to capture growth in C. Do give us a follow on whichever podcast platform you're listening on and feel free to reach out to either the EDP or Asia Partners to find out more. The theme of today's episode is regional expansion. With nearly 700 million people and counting, Southeast Asia is a market brimming with opportunities. It is also an incredibly dynamic environment, home to diverse markets and consumers, as well as a rapidly shifting landscape. To unlock value, businesses need to be ready to go beyond the borders of their headquarters and localize for each country. But given the many complications involved in expanding regional operations, especially here in Southeast Asia, how do you know when it is time to scale beyond your first base? Today is just going to be so much fun. We have with us Lim Wai Mun, who is the founder, chairman, and CEO of Doctor Anywhere, and also a very close personal friend. DA has recently clocked over one and a half million patients, clients served across Southeast Asia. Wyman got his start here in Singapore in 2015, but has very systematically and very thoughtfully expanded his business across Southeast Asia. He's in Thailand now, where he's number one in market share. He's in the Philippines, he's in Malaysia, and the number of countries will keep growing over time. He just finished raising an 88 million Singapore dollar Series C, which was one of the very largest private funding rounds ever raised by a health tech company in Southeast Asia. Full disclosure, we're shareholders too. We're <laughs> big fans of what he's doing. Waiman, thank you for joining us today. Throvik and Nick, thank you for inviting me to this podcast. Our pleasure. Really yeah. appreciate it. And very glad to be able to share how we have been along the entire journey. Tell us about the journey. There's so many small startups in Southeast Asia. You're one of the big ones. How did it all happen? So Nick, if you look across all major sectors in the world, healthcare is the second least disrupted industry. The least disrupted one being aviation. And if you look at why, the key reason is how regulated a certain industry is. So obviously, aviation is really regulated and hence is least disrupted. And by the way, both are life and death industries. So there's at least until on the, COVID. <laughs> oh, until COVID, yeah. But both are ones where the perception is the stakes are so high yeah. that we must regulate. Exactly. But you're making the argument very well that the stakes can be high, but we can also deliver it really well. Yes. And what I'm also trying to say is that because it's the second least disrupted in the major industry, it doesn't take a lot to innovate. <laughs> Right. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, <you know? laughs> it doesn't take a lot to innovate. The bar is, uh, is low in a sense. You don't need super high-tech stuff right, within the space. Because, just an example, if you walk into any of the hospitals in Southeast Asia, even under the same branding, under the same company, I will tell you that the systems are not even connected. You walk into the same brand name, Hospital A and B, in the same country, they won't even keep the same records there. And what does it mean? 
you're not talking about deep learning, machine learning stuff in here. No, you're, you're talking about bringing a USB drive with you to every doctor, so you can copy the stuff and <laughs> give it to the next guy. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Or, or simply have everything on you know cloud. on the cloud and yeah. just connecting the dots there. So then, for us, is before we go into this sexy, why don't we just be humbled, be very grounded, and say let's solve the basic problem first. Going back to connectivity, accessibility, affordability, because we optimize resources. Consistency. Exactly. And provide that quality service to our users. And that's pretty, in my opinion, awesome for a stage one. And I think that's exactly what we have been trying to do for the space. Doctor Anywhere, one of our first product, our core product, to deliver healthcare to our users through a video call is not new. Technically, you could do a WhatsApp call. But what we have done is that, okay, we have the video call, we have the payment system, we have that electronic healthcare record system, ability to have our doctors prescribe, store the health records of our users. And ultimately, we then also put in that logistic function to deliver the medication, which by the way, none of those are new sexy stuff in the market. Yeah. But putting them together was new. Exactly. So trying to see things from what a customer needs at a very basic level and work your way back and say, hey, yes, we'll get to that part about AI, about ML later on, but let's get this focus sorted out first with data, with insight into our customers. Then I think all those AI, ML stuff, when they come in, it makes so much sense. I would say that when we look back, we have really come a long way, but when we look forward, obviously we find that we are probably still at the beginning of what we're trying to achieve. When I distill everything, into what it has been, I do realize that there is certain truth to getting a lot of this growth to be unselfishly on the founder. And beyond certain point, the founders really need to have three things. That is part of our body, the mouth, the heart, and the gut. Now, the mouth being... Is that a medical diagnosis? <laughs> related to doctor anywhere, yes. Because <laughs> you have special clinics for each of these three areas, as I understand it. <laughs> so let me get to it, right? The mouth really is the ability to express what we're trying to do, to convince people, to convince investors, to convince our customers, to convince our B2B corporate partners, to convince our own employees to join us, good people. The heart it's where we take empathy into people that we deal with. When we hire, when we bring more talent on board, let's talk about talent, right? Talent, they don't just look for money or monetary rewards that way. It's beyond that. Many times they look at the founder, they look at the leaders, and only if you have amassed yourself a good team, more talent will want to join you. Talent attracts talent. And with empathy from a founder, you tend to also attract a different group of people to join you. And then that's a very scalable way of expanding a company. And gut is really about that gut feel about certain things. The ability for us to be able to have a good feeling about certain things or bad feeling and say, hey, stay out of it or let's try to do something. Many times, it's really not about that thought process. Sometimes I do feel that if you think too much, you might not be able to do it. And bear in mind that I've never once mentioned brain. Because an entrepreneur, a founder, you cannot have too much brain in it. You need to have these three things. Your mouth, your heart, and a gut. And when you attract the talent, they will be your brain. When DA was first started, absolutely nobody believed in it. I remember when we went live in August 2017, everyone was like, why am I just go back to Tamasic? Don't do this. This is one of the most stupid ideas, right? Because you look at all the community, you have so many GP clinics around. What are you trying to do? It will not work. 
people would just come down to see me at my clinic. And to me, what I felt back then was that logically they are correct. Logically. But my gut feel is that if he's correct, then if I were to link it to your food panda, so and so forth, why would those work? Yeah, because there are hawker centres everywhere. Exactly. And they work also within that one to two kilometres away from their home, the radius. Well, why when logically in 1910, people wanted faster horses that didn't go to the bathroom in the streets? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and 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 when you think about most, I wouldn't say it's innovation, right? Because what we're doing here exactly is not a rocket science. We are selling different things altogether, right? We are selling convenience. We are selling time back to people in the urban setting. So I started to feel that hey, maybe time is what they're looking for, mm-hmm. and and that was my gut feel. And really, again, so many good advice and really well-meaning advice from friends, from family. I just said, I think maybe there is an opportunity here. Yep. And then the team got started. We were happy with whoever joined us. And fast forward, all was okay at the start to the point when we were trying to scale up. That's super interesting. And I want to dig deeper into that. A lot of companies, when they start up, they think of their domestic market a lot. And I know in Singapore, you can never just think domestic. You have to think regionally. So for Doctor Anywhere, did you always know that you were going to be a regional company? And either way, what were your game plan to achieve growth? When we first started off, we are still a small company with big ambition. Singapore will forever be our test market. And to be honest, to a good extent, it's still a key market for Mm -hmm. us because it is a market that's small but profitable. But when you find volume, it will really be coming out from other parts of Southeast Asia. The key challenge here is about how, although we are all geographically close to each other, but the regulations, the people, the language, the culture, they're all just different. Especially in healthcare, it is even more pronounced. Give you an example. In Singapore, we are used to the GP clinics as a primary care function. But you don't find the same type of functions in Vietnam, in Thailand, to a good extent in the Philippines as well. Why? Because the primary source of care for them would be the pharmacy and not GP clinic. And when we look at that, you don't want to end up trying to change user behavior Mm. because that is a very expensive exercise and investors might not like it and neither do we like it because we have seen how bigger companies have tried to change user behavior in the transport industry, for example. You need billions of dollars to do that. Well, there's just so much accumulated trust that's been built up with the local pharmacist and why destroy that when you can somehow... Enhance it. Enhance it. Yes, exactly. And that's why we then think about the model of trying to enhance user experience and to go with it. Look, we, you, you don't need to always try to reverse what the industry is, but how do we make it better, especially in a very technical space like healthcare? And that is where I think it's very challenging because in every country, it's different. And when we look at how do we then repeat the same success that we have achieved so far in Singapore to a good extent into all these different countries, having a common platform is that first, we look at hiring local talent, bringing the local team in across all our offices in Southeast Asia. We have one in Hanoi, two in Ho Chi Minh, one in KL, one in Bangkok, and one in Manila. We do not have that expat mentality. Nobody is above my local GM who is a local. So we all work together as a team. They know exactly what's required on the ground and they tell us what they need and what we need to tweak to our existing platform and we do that. So far, that has worked well for us. We find that with this model, we are now even able to scale much easier 
Because with a local leader that is a local, you have a lot more credibility as a firm on the ground. Totally. It's so much more authentic. Let's double click on this for a bit. Mm. This is an interesting topic. When we were building Shopee at sea and ditto when we were building Garena, we always thought about it like the old days of those MP3 players, the old ones from 20 years ago. You could download a skin and you could change the look and feel of your MP3 player. And we said, look, we have a core technology stack, but each local market will have a downloadable skin so that it comes across as very local and authentic. And then we realized that even wasn't the right analogy, even though skin is the largest organ in the body. But we had to have a lot of interesting local customization and it almost got to the point where each of our countries were wholly owned franchise operations of a technology recipe that Singapore built. How have you thought about that in your business? The right balance of centralized, standardized, keep it efficient versus let's put a bunch of people into business. Technically, they're your employees, but you want them to think like business owners. Time and space. Time, Time and space. space. Time and space, right? In the beginning of a business, you cannot expect to go full on into really having everything customizable and localized in a sense. As a step in, as the most efficient way of doing it, as leaders, we always think about low-hanging fruit stuff, right? So we, again, not trying to really be Einstein here. We don't have to reinvent certain things. Just go in, ask ourselves, with our existing platform, what can we do with it? And we go with those first, establish a presence. And then with the local team, with the advice that they feedback to us in Singapore, our engineers and so forth, we then start to move into the model whereby we fully localize it. But you cannot just go in gung-ho about things and say, hey, that's what I want to do. Because when that happens, everything will be in flux. And at a certain stage, we are just not ready for it. So I guess there are a couple of areas in market entry that I think everyone would be thinking about. So the first is really how do you get authentic and relevant customer insights in that part of the country or the city that you're operating in a way that it's actually meaningful for your platform. Because I think a lot of people, they worry that if I go in, maybe the market's not mature enough, maybe they don't understand, we can be of value. How do you navigate that? It's really having conversation with your own team. Mm -hmm. It's really also going down to survey, talk to your clients, your consumers on a regular basis, right. fine-tune your model. What we also find very interesting is that sometimes consumers might not know what they want. So when we try to launch something in a more pilot manner, we would then try to learn from it okay. and finesse the model again. And that whole iteration will keep happening to the point whereby we see that, hey, this is what the consumer really want. And then we keep doubling down on that one item. And you mentioned when consumers highlight problems, do you see that as opportunities for you to build on your product? If I were to put on... My previous investor had, I would see Southeast Asia as a region that is difficult to invest in. Why? Because from outside in, you can never understand. You are potentially investing into eight companies, nine companies, uh, sorry, countries. And that to me, it's a whole lot of diligence to be done. Do I really want to get into that mess? Or do I want to just go to China or, or, or India or US where you have a more uniform market? And I can see that as a lot of complaints in a sense. And obviously, as an entrepreneur, we forever have that you know, optimistic, half-full mentality, which is that if these are all complaints, it's also where we find opportunity. Whoever that can first break that code, get to the holy grail, will win the game. Especially in healthcare. If you look at healthcare, health tech especially, and I can probably speak for that sector because I'm very much involved in it, 
there are a few companies that have been here, same category as us, but hasn't really found a way as well around in Southeast Asia. You're talking about very big Chinese company. You're talking about more of the leading, largest telehealth company based in the US as well. They've been here. They're still sticking around, but have they found much success? I think there is a lot of navigation to be done because it's just a very fragmented market. But at the same time, if we can find a solution to tie everything with a base platform, I think there is a lot of opportunities in it. And how do we do it really is to find a common point with all these customers that we have across the region, starting with Singapore, right? The truth is that Singapore as a country, we are the gateway to the whole region. A lot of companies will station themselves here, headquartered here, and then they get their employees to work out of Singapore into other parts of Southeast Asia. And I still think that it's a very viable option yeah. in a sense. Is that because of like access and convenience? I think Singapore is extremely friendly to foreigners. In Singapore, you can just start a company tomorrow. In fact, today, if you want it right now, you just go into Accra, you can register a company already. But in other countries, you might take three months, six months, sometimes 12 months to register a company. So the ease, the convenience, the infrastructure, the friendliness at the end of it, I think that is where I still think Singapore would be the gateway to Southeast Asia. I think like we discussed earlier on, the only downside to Singapore is that in terms of the absolute number of people staying here, population-wise, it's still considered a small market. But hey, Singapore is one of the most, I would say, high-spending developed country in Southeast Asia. And it's factual. And if you cannot even convince the developed market to consume your product, something to think about. But if you can convince the developed market to consume your product, you have built a BMW, but how do you try to now respect it into a Toyota to be sold into the developing market? Then that is a consideration, but it doesn't mean that it cannot be done. So another area I'm really interested in is how you decided the mood in which you entered some of these countries. When people think about regional expansion, there's a couple of ways. You can do acquisition of existing companies, you can do JVs, you can do like completely go in and see the team. What were some of the considerations you made around how Doctor Anywhere should do it and how did you land at the model that you ended up with? Because outside of Singapore and Southeast Asia, a lot of these markets can be quite inward looking. To navigate easier within the country, you probably might want to consider having a local partner in that sense. But again, it also depends on what you're trying to achieve. In certain markets, you really don't have to. But for some of the key markets that we go into, we do find that having that leverage on our partner as a start is something that can be very helpful. One yeah. of the key markets, for example, for us, Philippines. Our local partner being Equicom. Equicom is the owner of uh, the largest health maintenance organization in the Philippines called MaxiCare. And when we work with then MaxiCare to provide that connected healthcare to their own users, the access to their customer that is untapped when we first went in, that was tremendous results for us. We have grown 10, 20 times our size just within a period of a few months. And when we take many steps back to look at, hey, why did that happen? It's really because we found ourselves a very credible local partner to work with. And eventually that gave us the access, that gave us the opportunity to grow. And it's not impossible, it's just that it takes a longer time to grind. One of the things that we hear is that maybe some of these players in other markets, they don't really want to work with textiles because they are skeptical or maybe they don't trust players from outside of the locality. So how did you offer value and prove that you can be an enabler and partner? I think one of the few things that Equicom was, for example, when they were looking at potentially partnering us, they were also looking at our investors 
who are the guys backing you? And back then, when we first started the conversation, EDBI, who is our Series B investor, they represent the government of Singapore. And having that backing was a much easier conversation to start off with. Oh, so the government is backing Doctor Anywhere. Okay, something's brewing, right? I'm not sure what, but something's brewing. And with that gut feel, I'll try to start a conversation with you. Because it's not easy, Rovik, you're right. To first have that first touch point and say, hey, work with me. And for them, it's a lot to lose. For me, it's nothing to lose. And how do we marry to come in between? It's something that I think a lot to consider for them. Again, not advertisement here, right? When we showed them the list of people coming in, Philip as well, you know, some of these are more familiar healthcare names. And Asia Partner being literally Asia. That helped a lot. People who understand locals, people who understand what's going on. And for them, it was another tick off the box. So that to me is already a very good testament, at least for companies. You are right to say that they look for a few checkboxes, but I think all this play into they coming to a decision point to say, okay, let me work with you. I think, Rovik, one of the things that we're hearing across all these conversations we've been having these last few weeks is one of the most important things and yet one of the hardest things to quantify in building a Southeast Asia business is the steady increase of your share price of credibility. And whether it's people judge you by the company you keep, or they judge you by a few deliverables or milestones or the 4.9 rating on the Google store, entrepreneurs are super attuned to this idea of every day, how can I build a little bit more credibility for my business? And that ultimately becomes the gift that keeps on giving because by the time Dr. Anywhere is a multi-billion dollar company, then actually magnetically opportunities will be coming to Wyman. But right now when Wyman is going out there and saying, hey, I'd love to work with you, that little credibility score, it's almost like a little augmented reality score in the upper right of the screen for everybody. Yeah. It's slowly inching upwards. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's about important. finding more supporter for yeah. you from many different sources, not just being your investors. Oh, no, everything. everything. Even your customers, customers can be your supporter. So the last kind of area in my mind that I was really interested to double-click on was customer acquisition. Do you consider yourselves primarily B2C or do you have a B2B sort of component as well? B2B to C? Yeah, okay. Or B2C. At the heart of the company, it's always about the customers. So because you've done that customer needs analysis really at a local level, I guess you also need to employ different ways to acquire customers, right? whether it's digital marketing, whether it's working through the partners. How have you thought about thinking differently about customer acquisition and maybe building that capability, whether centralized or decentralized? This is a very deep topic for us, even as we're talking right now. Maybe let me describe it from our perspective. Yeah, please. Right? When we look at either B2B or B2C, like I said, customer is always our core focus. We just look at that initial relationship that reach out as a funnel. So if it's B2B, we work with insurance brokers and we work with corporates directly, we work with banks and so forth to reach out to customers. So that's one engine for us. And then the other engine would be your usual Google AdWords, SEO, SEM, so and so forth. Digital marketing. Digital marketing. So we broadly understand that in every country that we are in, we always have these two funnel engine running. Then the key question here is that, okay, we know that's what we want, but how do we do it? Is it a localized manner? Or is it more of a centralized manner? So what we find at this point in time, more logical and low-hanging fruit for us would be to localize B2B mm-hmm. because it's a local relationship that you can't just handle from Singapore. For sure. Right? And it involves enterprise selling at the end of the day. As well. That's correct. And most importantly, that kind of culture, having somebody who can speak Thai in Thailand is just different from having this guy who speaks English in Thailand. And Google AdWords doesn't help you with B2B selling. But having that whole Google app, that whole SEM, SEO, 
we find that it's possible for us to kind of centralize. Especially for the B2C side of your business. Exactly. But having said that, we also realized, and we learned this really for a few years already, that although you can centralize a certain function, you still want to localize it to a good extent. By having a local person in that office to link up with your centralized resources in HU to say that, hey, yes, I understand what you're trying to achieve, but this is not the right way to talk yes. to the locals here. Very right. So localizing the language, the visuals. Is, it's actually is 10 it? levels beyond that. I mean, and not, okay. and not, yeah. Anyone can translate, right. but it's deeper than that. Exactly, it's deeper than that. For example, initially when we were in Thailand, we were just trying to blast out GP services. It doesn't help because, like I mentioned much earlier on, the primary care there happens at pharmacy. Nobody really go to GP. So you can translate and really have very nice pictures, but if that is not the local way, the culture of assessing healthcare, it doesn't matter what you say. And hence, the ability to understand that part and also to translate the material and say that GP probably is still what we want to sell, but these are the few things that you can look out to a GP for. And this is an, probably an upgrade from a pharmacist, so and so forth. Then you can attract the attention of your consumer and, oh, interesting, then they will start to use you. I know we have limited time left, Waiman, but I just want to highlight two last things. One is I just want to pay you an enormous compliment, which is as much as you've been building a business geared around growth and shareholder value, part of how you've done that is you've chosen to make a big part of your business an area of healthcare that has not just been underserved, it's arguably been stigmatized for all the wrong reasons, which is mental health. And I can't think of a single better use case than for traditional telemedicine than being able to talk to someone. Mm. And COVID has been a time of enormous stress to add to the everyday stresses that we all go through. So I just wanted to pay you an enormous compliment for making these kinds of services available. And I was wondering if you could share with all of us and our listeners, what is the future of mental health using technology? And how do we further embrace this as a true therapeutic area where people can really get help to lead more fulfilling lives? In my opinion, looking at users' behavior in this part of the world, I still do not think that our people here understand what mental wellness is. You can have all the infrastructure you want, but I still don't think people understand what it is and know how to fully make use of it. A lot of Southeast Asian, because it's all in our culture, that we tend to keep a lot of things to ourselves. We're overly stoic. Right? Exactly. Somehow or rather, the ego within us will never allow us to admit that something is wrong with us, be it in the shower room or not. And when we go into talking with the HR of companies, and we believe that is probably the right way to do it through mm -hmm. B2B. Why? Because uh, B2C, people will still question, wait, why am I paying $100 to talk to somebody that I can just talk to my wife or my husband or my friends? So people still will not see the value. But when you approach it from a different manner to sure. say, hey, this benefit. is it's a benefit, it's free for you, go get it. But even then, it's not good enough because people still don't know. So we let's move one step back and say that, hey, why don't, as a company, you use our diagnostic tools? And then as a tool, we'll then go back to your company and say, hey, this is what your employee is feeling right now. And by the way, that's something that we've done with Custom. They did this great mental health wellness month and you've been a part of that. Exactly. Yeah. So we did like this whole up-wide diagnostics for them and we gave them some insight into what their employees could be feeling, so and so forth. And eventually when we conduct that mental wellness talk, it's relevant. It's a little bit like if you have cough, cold, flu and every day I'm just telling you about diabetes and hypertension, you look at me and you're like, why are you telling me this? I just have a cough, cold, flu. And the same for mental wellness. Because you want to make sure that you are really connecting with the user at a very personalized level. And that's when they will listen. If they listen, then 
you have a good chance of getting them to understand that they need help. And when they know that they need help, then they will start to utilize on the tools. Yeah, that's really encouraging. I'm a big proponent and, and believer in the need for mental wellness and more conversations around like how we can access mental wellness support. And so uh, this is really exciting stuff. And I'm glad that Dr. Anywhere is making you know strides in educating and, and helping organizations and people. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I learned a lot and I'm sure all our listeners are going to be learning a lot. And I'm excited for the future of Dr. Anywhere. I hope to see you guys in more markets and doing greater things. I, I guess I should have admitted I'm a big user of it as well. So. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool to be able to talk to you as well. So thank you so much. Thank for you so much, Robbie. Yeah. I'm and incredibly you, proud of what you've done, Waiman. I mean, you've put Singapore on the map from a healthcare perspective in the next generation. And I'd like back to the mental health conversation, you've done so much good. Yeah. You're really saving lives. So proud thank of you. you. Awesome. Thank you so much. And Personally, I do hope that uh, it can be Doctor Anywhere, it can be any health tech company, but I would want to just end off by saying that there are just abundance of opportunities within Southeast Asia for anyone looking from outside in. It's not complicated if you work with people on the inside. Yep, I think that's definitely a great lesson. Thanks again for tuning in to Growth Islands. For more great content and resources on expanding your team in Southeast Asia, check out the Growth Islands microsite in the podcast description link. We'll see you in the next episode.